Hello, my name is Keenan Ellis, and I'm the writer and creator of The Phone Booth. I'm breaking the fourth wall by speaking to you now, because this is important. The episode you're about to listen to wraps up the story of Bishop Klein, his cousin Charlie, and how they created the new nation of the United States of New England. It features themes of fascism, police brutality, and it even has an election. I wrote this episode nearly two years ago, and never expected to release it during these times. So with all that in mind, I would like to take a moment to urge everyone listening to vote. Whether by mail or in person, voting is the best way to enact change and have your voice be heard. If you're not registered yet, go to vote.org. It takes no time at all and could make all the difference in the world. I know these are hard times, but voting is the first step to making them better. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. I grew up in New Jersey. For years after B-Day, my mother and I hid in our home as the country tore itself apart. I'm sure many of you remember the constant fear that occupied the collapse, never knowing when some overpowered, desperate person would break into your house and end the life you so desperately clung to. The collapse was a dark time for everyone, a true apocalypse, rife with starvation, roaming armies, and warlords. We were alone. We were terrified. And we would accept any help we could get, no matter whose hand gave it. For many, that hand belonged to Bishop Klein. For years, he led his army, the Iron Corps, across Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, and most of Massachusetts, assimilating all, whether they wanted to or not, into his fledgling new nation, the United States of New England. I still remember the stories. I'm sure you do as well. You wouldn't starve in New England. You didn't die in New England. You could be safe in New England. No matter how hollow they sound now, those stories gave me hope. Hope that there was a better place out there, somewhere. But much like the country it was born from, the USNE did not come as advertised. It wasn't long before that hope turned to fear, that utopia replaced by a regime. Bishop Klein was the leader of that regime, and though it was eventually displaced by democracy, the land and its people still bear scars from that time. At first, Bishop was a hero. Then he became a villain. But as I see him now, he is just a man. A man with a story. If you haven't listened to Champ Part 1, please go check it out. We promise we'll be here when you get back. People ask me why the USNE was able to form such a stable nation. I usually give them the answers they teach in school. Small population, generations of surviving in inhospitable environments, more farms than grocery stores, blah, blah, blah. But the real reason? Vision. We had someone who could see the whole board and put every piece right where they needed to be. We had Charlie. I remember lying in that half-destroyed office building with Charlie, the world collapsing around us. 
I was ready to shit my pants. When I asked Charlie for a plan, I was hoping for something small, something easy, something that would keep the two of us safe. But that's not how Charlie thinks. Why save ourselves when we can save everyone? That's what he said. Why can't we save everyone? I didn't have an answer, so I asked him where to start. He laid it down and I laughed. It was ridiculous, impossible, but it was Charlie talking, so I listened. The city, the world, had lost its mind. Uncontrolled powers were popping off at random. Monsters were stalking the streets. Flyers were floating into the sky only to burn up in the atmosphere. And that was just what we could see. There were no leaders, no safety, just chaos, violence, and death. Charlie's plan was simple. Save as many lives as we could. Protect the people, and only when everyone was safe could civilization return. But we couldn't save anyone until we knew more. Charlie couldn't solve our problems if he didn't know what our problems were. Our opponent, Charlie said, wasn't the people or the powers. It was this wild, dangerous, random new world. B-Day had changed the rules, and we had no choice but to change with them. And to do that, Charlie needed a little recon. It was then that Charlie looked away, frustration etched into every inch of his face. Frail and unpowered as he was, Charlie would be a liability in the field. He would have to stay behind. I would have to go alone. For two weeks, I traveled through the post-B-Day world, living off what rations I could find, sleeping with one eye open. Wish I hadn't. Wish I could have gone back to the lake, fix up Cecilia, and go looking for Champ. But that wasn't going to happen. Charlie asked for my help. Champ and Cecilia would have to wait. I made my way through Burlington, watching, taking notes, but never engaging. It was too dangerous. Jumping into a fight without knowing what the powers of your opponent are was something only a dumbass like me would do. Charlie made me promise not to engage. He was right, like always, but it didn't make it any easier. Some of the shit I saw just killed me to walk away. But I kept walking. I had a job to do. I found still-functioning farms, noting down the number of cattle and crops. I mapped out the city, drawing the territorial lines the newly formed gangs and militias knew by heart. I tracked the trails of the anatrope packs, and through it all, I walked past countless flyers hanging from lampposts, pleading for help as second by second their grips loosened. I turned my back as roving gangs of kids descended upon the helpless and the frail. I hid from hungry anatropes, walking, stalking in packs that could tear through me in seconds. In two weeks, I saw more horrific shit than I'd ever seen in my life. I was scared, but not of the monsters or the powers. I was scared of the people. Think of all those apocalypse movies. Everything always goes to shit because of some outside force. A disease, the weather, zombies, God, some out-of-control machine. It's always something else. But the collapse was caused by us. By human beings. This wasn't some act of God making us victims. This was an act of a human making us gods. And the moment we got just a little bit of power, 
we destroyed the world. Everything was up for grabs, man. Any fantasy fulfilled because every Yahoo in the world felt like a freaking chosen one. I'll tell you, arrogance and entitlement killed more people than hunger ever could. Though hunger gave it a shot. I remember telling Charlie that people were the problem. They would fight us tooth and nail and all we could do was fight them right back. But Charlie disagreed. And I thank God every day he did. People weren't the problem, he said. They were the solution. Right now they were scared, lashing out blindly, trying to protect themselves. But if you give a person safety, if you give them the freedom to make their own choices and the power to protect what they care about, they'd stand with you. I groaned at that. Charlie was always making shit harder than it needed to be. It was easier just to bust anyone who didn't agree with you in the nose. Charlie clapped me on the shoulder and said, You can't have a civilization without people. And as always, I couldn't argue. So I did as he told me. But no matter what Charlie said, I knew we would need some help. The problems were too big, too powerful. There was no way we could do it alone. So after my two-week recon mission, I dropped by an old buddy's place to pick up some new recruits. I had met Mervyn, Denny, and Duquette on an old construction gig I used to work down in Stowe. They were big, strong guys. All bigger and stronger now that Becca had her say. They were holed up at Duquette's place, taking pot shots with hunting rifles at any anatrope who walked by. Yeah, they weren't the best guys, but they were tough, strong, and loyal. Three qualities we would need if Charlie's plan had any chance of working. Charlie wasn't too happy when I brought the boys back with me. He never got on with my guys. It was the one time he couldn't charm someone. I chalked it up to them being so fundamentally different. The boys were like me. Large-muscled rednecks who never met a problem we couldn't break over our knee. Charlie was a pretty city kid with a college education and a tendency to look down on anyone who solved arguments with fists instead of words. They weren't a good mix, but I didn't think it would matter. As long as I was standing in the middle, the boys and Charlie never had to speak. They listened to me, and I listened to Charlie. As long as we respected the chain of command, everything would be all right. It took a while, but finally Charlie relented. To this day, I think it's the only time I've beaten him in an argument. The boys stayed, and Charlie factored them into the plan. We would start with the flyers. With my team protecting me, I would lasso down every floating idiot in the city, then tie a long rope around my waist and have each one cling to it like ants on a log. Using my new weight and strength, I would drag them, Mother Duckling style, all the way to the UVM gymnasium, where they could float safely. Then, once they got it under control, each flyer would join us, swelling our ranks. Charlie said it matter-of-factly, like it was the easiest thing in the world. That's how we talked. Always simple. Never impatient that everyone else was always five steps behind him. The boys looked at him like he was crazy. But they liked the idea of new members, new recruits for the Iron Corps. Charlie and I shared a look. The Iron Corps. It was the first time we'd heard the name. Denny came up with it, 
Every good strike force needed a name, he said. The Iron Corps was ours, named for my bones. I could tell Charlie didn't like it. it. Made us sound like an army. He wanted to avoid violence at all costs, thinking that all we needed was the right words and the strength to back them up. But that was the one thing I understood that Charlie didn't. Sometimes, you gotta punch someone in the face. After the flyers, we had to deal with the anatropes. First time I heard the word, but I didn't question it. Monsters, beasts, or devils didn't really describe them, so we came up with something new. An anatrope seemed as good a word as any. I was all for putting a bullet in their heads, but Charlie said no. No matter what Becca turned them into, they were still humans, and they would be treated as such. But once we got out in the field, we soon realized that anatropes were the least of our worries. It's tragic, man. They get painted as these rabid beasts hungry for human flesh, but only because they were half crazed from the pain of their transformation. After they settled down, they were peaceful, docile, even friendly. We rescued a lady who was pregnant during the cascade, gave birth to a litter of the cutest little things I've ever seen, covered in fur with ears the size of their head. It had to stop Mervyn shoving them in a sack and throwing them in the river. He saw them as an abomination against God or something. Put them on psychiatric leave after that. Charlie's orders. Our main goal was to corral them into the wilderness. Easiest part of the job by far. Used Australian shepherds to herd them. They went peacefully. Sure, there were a couple troublemakers. Even some we had to put down. But damn if those weren't the easy days. The hard days were when we ran up against people. Most folk left us well enough alone while we were fishing flyers down. But when we came for the rest of the city, they started to get violent. These were hippies who thought we were the establishment, college kids who thought we were shitting on their Garden of Eden, but mostly just assholes who didn't want to give up their own little kingdom. Some of the shit we saw, all most people need is an excuse and being able to fly is a damn good one. We liberated more girls from their boyfriends, busted down more doors, rescued more people. Anyway, it all came back around, didn't it? Charlie was right. Society can be mighty attractive to those starving and dying out on their own. We promised security, equality, and most importantly, food. Farmers offered up their goods, electricians got the grid back online, plumbers helped us shit again, and before you knew it, we had the beginnings of our very own civilization. And all the while, the Iron Corps brought more territory into the Union. After we got Burlington under control, we pushed out, accepting surrenders from Essex, Williston, and Stowe, until finally, we hit Montpelier. Things had gotten a little dark in the state capital. This kid, I, I can't remember his name, had taken over. Little shit could mind control, right? The whole city was a bunch of drones doing the bidding of this pervy, pimple-faced brat. What he was making those people do for him? Had to get him with a hunter's rifle. Couldn't afford to get too close. I, I can't remember his name, but... I'll never forget his face. After Montpelier, we kept moving. 
Soon we had the entire county under control, then the entire state, then New Hampshire. At nights, we'd listen to powered radio, cheering at the other stories of heroism and falling silent when they mentioned the fighting in New York, or worse, the silence in L.A. Those were long nights, man. But it wasn't anything compared to what Charlie was dealing with back home. He was our general, in charge of the whole battle plan. On top of that, he ran the entire country, bringing in food, making sure it was grown, feeding everybody, then dealing with the political bullshit that happens whenever someone's in charge. Every town we liberated brought more people into our budding nation. And just as Charlie said, we started to get volunteers, mostly for the Iron Corps. I don't know. There's something about bashing down a door, beating up the bad guy, and saying that everything's going to be okay that inspires loyalty. Our numbers grew. The Iron Corps became just what Charlie was afraid it would become. A freaking army. With me at its head. We protected the farms, maintained the peace, and took any territory by force when diplomacy failed. Charlie didn't like that. But there was a lot Charlie didn't like about how he conducted business. Thing was, he didn't know. Yeah, it was Charlie who brought us together. Charlie who sent us out and Charlie who kept our little nation from falling apart while the Corps was out kicking ass and taking names. But it wasn't Charlie on the ground. He never busted into a room, only to be mentally assaulted by a psychic. He never marched through winter, slaughtering anatropes for food. He never pointed a rifle at a teenager and pulled the trigger. He didn't know. And the gulf between what he did on the home front and what we did on the front line began to grow. There were several raids I ordered kept secret from Charlie. Several good soldiers who lost their cool in the heat of the moment and did something that Charlie would have court-martialed them for. I didn't think it mattered. I was protecting my men. And they loved me for it. Every night we'd sit around the fire with the boys digging into me. Why are we listening to him? He doesn't even have powers. We're the ones doing all the work. All he does is sit back and take the credit. I passed it off as fireside talk. But I hate to admit it. I began to listen with both ears. Charlie's rule was diplomacy first, and then only as a last resort, violence. I had a psychic deliver my terms to each apartment complex or territory we came up against giving them every chance to surrender before we started knocking heads. Funny thing was, we got more surrenders in the beginning when it was just the four of us than in the end. I don't know. I guess there's something about seeing an army at your doorstep that makes civilized negotiations a bit difficult. The boys' whispers began to grow in volume. Why go through the long, arduous, and often useless motion to diplomacy when it was always going to end in violence? It was a question I did not have an answer to. And it was a question I was sure Charlie could have made sense of. But Charlie was back in Burlington, while I was waging what was increasingly looking like a war. I had to think for myself, answer the questions by myself. And the world is a worse place for it. It all came crashing down when we marched on Boston. The independent principality of Boston was not a post-apocalyptic shithouse when we arrived at our borders. Most cities we ran up against had attempted to create their own little city-states, ruled by whatever idiot could punch the hardest. 
Each and every one either surrendered to us or was so despotically ruled we didn't feel too bad rolling in and kicking ass. But Boston, well, Boston was different. They weren't starving or enslaved. They weren't living in fear. They were hard and tough people. And they had created a stable, self-sustaining fiefdom that resembled what we had done ourselves in New England. There was no reason for us to take it. Except one. I wanted to. I can blame the boys whispering in my ear. I can blame months on the campaign trail, our near unbeatable record, or that I just really wanted to own Fenway Park. Whatever it was, I was riding high and ordered the attack on Boston. It was the first in a long line of mistakes that would ruin everything. For the next six months, we fought what is known today as the Battle of Beantown, each morning we made our assault across the Charles River, and each morning we were thrown back. It didn't matter what tactics we tried. Airborne, psychic, physical, telekinetic catapults, invisible infiltration. Nothing worked. About a month in, I received a call from Charlie. He was furious. He didn't see why we were attacking Boston. They didn't need us. They were safe until we got there. He ordered me to come home. I hung up on him before he finished. Charlie called back the next day, and the next, but I ignored him each time. He even went so far as to send a flyer down to give me personal orders, but I ignored them too. All I could see was that red sitgo sign taunting me every morning. All I could imagine was throwing a pitch from center mound. Man, if it wasn't for the coup... I think I'd still be fighting in Boston. I had stopped taking Charlie's daily calls, but on that day, I guess it's called Red Mom Day now, my assistant brought the satellite phone to me, her face ashen. It was this ginger lady, Noelle Babson. She was one of those PTA moms who thinks she's on a holy crusade knocking pizza from the school lunch menu. Well, she found a cause a little more important than pizza the supposed military dictatorship of Charlie and me. Man, could that woman talk. Rallied up every last suburbanite in the city and went to war against Charlie. They were calling for his blood. They were going to string him up, and Charlie didn't have the power to stop them. He needed me. He needed the Corps. He needed us to come home. I called off the seeds the moment I hung up the phone. I had our winged unit fly me home as quickly as possible. Charlie was locked in the basement, with Babson and her followers bashing down the door when we got there. It was the only time I was ever actually afraid. I didn't know what we would do without Charlie. Still don't. We kicked the shit out of Babson, snuffed her out like she was nothing. But our troubles didn't stop there. We had just spent six months getting the shit knocked out of us down in Boston. Some of the guys... Needed to let off a little steam. Some of the guys got a little carried away. Of all the deaths on my conscience, Noelle Babson weighs the heaviest. But she did win in the end. All we did by saving Charlie was prove to him that Babson was right. We were dictators, a police state, fascists without even trying. A week after the coup, Charlie made a decree. 
It was time to bring back democracy. It was time for an election. I argued with him, said the last thing we needed was a change in leadership, that we were doing fine with him at the wheel and having some new idiot in charge could do real damage to what we had accomplished. It was then that he dropped the hammer. He wanted to disband the Iron Core, said there was no need for it anymore. I couldn't believe it. It was like a betrayal. He had built this country on the backs of these hard-working men and women. They had bled and died for him, and now he was going to toss them aside like they were nothing? Charlie smiled. I realized I had been shouting. He spoke softly, calmly. He appreciated all the Iron Corps had done for the country. They had stabilized it, brought civilization and safety back to a world devoid of both. But now, in the peaceful, civilized world we had created, our methods were medieval. We made ourselves irrelevant. The Corps was a tool of war. And the USNE wasn't at war any longer. I disagreed. What about the expansion, I asked. What about Boston? What about the rest of America? Charlie shook his head. Diplomacy will bring them in, he said, not force. If we don't have to fight, then why are we fighting? I didn't have an answer for that, so I nodded. Charlie was right. He was always right. So we had an election. He was so confident it was going to be him. Who else could run against the man who had saved us, created a country, created a future? Turns out there was one person who could beat him, but only one. I was out of the city when it happened. Peace negotiations with Boston had to be handled, and I had to make apologies. The boys thought it humiliating, but Charlie said it was necessary, so I did it. I wasn't paying too much attention to the election. Charlie was confident he would win, and I had lived a life certain that Charlie was usually right. But that was in the old world. The old world that Charlie was still a part of. But in this new world, there was no way the people would elect an unpowered man to be their leader. They wanted someone strong, someone who represented their experience, Someone who had bashed down their door, beat up the bad guys, and told them it would all be okay. They wanted me. I don't know who wrote me down on the ballot, but it caught on like wildfire. Bishop Klein, the Iron Leader. Sounded like Nazi propaganda to me. I tried to ignore it, but when we finally got back to Burlington, a parade was waiting for me and a grim Charlie was there to swear me in as the first president of the United States of goddamn New England. So stupid. For the first time in our lives, Charlie wouldn't talk to me. I tried to get him out on the lake. Cecilia was still broken, but we found a boat anyway. Just like the old days. We went. He had a far-off look in his eyes, like a man who had just had his sentence passed. He agreed to stay on, be my vice, run the country and everything but actual name. I was so relieved I didn't press the issue. We didn't talk about him, just the future, just the country, and then nothing at all. 
Just before we made our way in, Charlie whispered, No champ today. I kept silent, knowing the moment we docked, our lives would be changed forever. But for nearly a year, everything was fine. I acted as president, but mostly Charlie did all the work. The Battle of Beantown continued. The people wanted it. And in democracy, it's all about the people. Charlie did fight it, but Charlie didn't have the power anymore. One by one, they stopped listening to him. The cabinet, the senators, even his freaking assistant. They saw him as a relic, something from the past that no longer worked or was needed. It wasn't long before he was being dismissed by the entire government, except me. I still needed him. We were right on the cusp of taking Boston when I walked into Charlie's office and found a letter of resignation sitting in his chair. I'd rather not get into specifics, but the short of it was he was done and moving to the Northeast Kingdom. It's kind of this wildlands east of Burlington. Not a lot of law enforcement even before Becca. I, I, I couldn't understand it. Charlie was the boy from the city, the man who founded a country. How could he drop everything? How could he drop me? I went out to get him. He had bought a small cottage in the woods, miles from anything or anyone. He wouldn't hear it, wouldn't even look at me. I stayed for about an hour. We talked about this and that. Nothing seemed to excite him, and I realized he was just waiting for me to leave. I obliged, feeling each step I took away from him was one I couldn't take back. Without Charlie, it wasn't long before I royally messed up. We got our ass kicked in Boston, and the expansion ground to a halt. Without the campaign, the economy bottomed out, and we were hit with our very own economic depression. Finally, a real-world problem without a single real person to deal with it. I was removed from office and replaced with someone just as inefficient. In my last speech to the cabinet, I tried to tell them the answer to all of our problems was living 20 miles away in the wilderness, raising goats and writing shit poetry. They didn't listen. How could an unpowered man lead a powered world? I still go out to see Charlie every year on his birthday. The distance stays the same, but I keep going. Just trying to get him to come back for one day. Just one day. I got something to show him. About a month after I was impeached, I went back to the marina. Years before, I had dragged Cecilia into the shop with every intention of fixing her up. Never got the chance. Never had the time. As you can imagine, I was pretty down. I'd lost my army, my country, and my brother. The world seemed a horribly lonely place to be, and without Charlie, I couldn't take it. So I got to work. And the world fell away, leaving nothing behind but the burn in my muscles, the ache in my back, the sweat on my brow. The work went slow. I didn't have nobody to spur me on, but it didn't matter. Progress wasn't the goal. But eventually... I finished. I remember stepping back, wiping paint and sweat from my hands to behold Cecilia, 
our boat. It was like stepping back through time. I was a kid again, staring up at the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I heard a scuffle and spun around, expecting Charlie to be standing there, holding a book, quoting some corny poem. But it was only a squirrel. It hit me then. Charlie was gone, and he wasn't coming back. Alone, I pushed Cecilia out into the cold waters of Lake Champlain. She sailed beautifully, cutting through water just like she used to. It was a calm day, and when the wind finally died out, I rolled up her sail and lay back. I had a cooler full of beer and nowhere else to be. There was no one to fight, no place to civilize, no friend to talk to. I thought I'd just stay out there forever. But then the lake exploded. A mushroom cloud of water shot skyward, almost obscuring the dark shape in its mist. Large and long, its scaly neck arced gracefully down into its sleek body. It rose into the air, slender, beautiful, and unlike anything I'd ever seen. Then it crashed back into the lake, nearly capsizing Cecilia. Soaked and terrified, I clung to my tiller, water washing over me. The waves quieted, and Cecilia settled. I looked up to find two enormous eyes breaking the lake's surface to stare curiously at me. I edged forward and extended my hand, its massive head bent down, allowing me to pet it. I had never seen anything like it, but damn if it didn't look familiar. It was the largest anatrope I'd ever seen. I couldn't help but smile as I named it Champ. Hi there everyone, it's Keenan again. This episode marks the end of season two of The Phone Booth. Due to the pandemic, this season was a little more bare bones than the last, and I'd like to thank you all for sticking with us. I'm incredibly proud of these episodes and hope to make more of them in the future. As to when you'll see more episodes of The Phone Booth, I can't say for sure. I'd like to be as transparent as possible with you, which means, unfortunately, the wait may be a long one. The third and final season of The Phone Booth is mapped out and ready to be produced, but due to a certain worldwide catastrophe, our capability to produce the show to the high standard of the first season is simply impossible. We do want to end this story with the power it deserves, and so that requires a little patience. I promise I will finish the story, I just don't know when, and I'm truly sorry for the wait. But in the meantime, we have other projects— 
Check out our new fantasy podcast, The Endless Ocean, which follows a band of explorers sailing into a mysterious, magical ocean. It's a great time, and hopefully we'll tide you over until we can get the phone booth back on track. Thanks again for listening.